This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance, sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Women Radio, and today's Risky Woman is Sam Moston. Sam is one of Australia's most senior professional non-executive directors. She holds many board seats and is also well known for being the first ever female commissioner of the Australian Football League. Sam is a strong advocate for actively addressing gender equality good corporate governance, and the responsibility of business to help government solve problems. Sam recently joined us at our live event in Sydney on the topic of taking a few risks. And given the positive response, we wanted to share her ideas with our wider network on Risky Women Radio. In Sydney, we went on a wonderful journey looking at a range of issues with our lens of taking a few risks. You set the scene beautifully, sharing your insights on that theme, and I'd love you to share some of those thoughts with us now. Thanks, Kimberly, and it's lovely to join you on Risky Women Radio, um, and it was great to have the event in Sydney. I know the room felt incredibly um, energised, and there were some fantastic interactions with the women we had in the room. Um, I think, as I recall, the, the things that I really wanted to convey to the group um, with that conversation around taking risks were twofold. I started by talking about the risk we take in our personal lives, particularly our career lives, and then I looked at risk as a driver of performance and what what are the steps that make organisations better able to take really good risks that then lead to opportunity. And the, the opening remarks were really about how we as women um, do need to take risks in our careers and in the decisions we take as women, and that we live in a time where we also need to support those risky women who are out there doing things that um, some of us might not feel comfortable with, but we need them doing that to to change the conversation. And I was thinking particularly about the Me Too environment, that a lot of women have come forward in very risky situations to talk honestly about issues that have happened to them over the course of their lives. And we were seeing more women um, stepping up, I think, telling their stories. And they're, they're taking personal risks doing that. But I think we now live in a time where they're honoured for that and respected for it and we need to see change come from that. So when I looked back over my own career, I guess what I shared with the audience most of all was that um, over, the, over the course of a sort of long and, and complex and, and really varied career, I've discovered that the more risk I take, the luckier I get. Um, now that might sound a bit trite, but I think um, we've learned over time that from a very young age, girls particularly are taught to play safe uh, we're taught to budget, to run homes, to save well, whereas boys and men uh, are taught from the very earliest that they, they should take risks, calculated risks, sensible risks, um, sometimes put their money at risk in order to, uh, to be entrepreneurial and, and get the benefit of taking that risk. So um, over the course of my life, I've discovered that despite having that kind of upbringing about being safe, I've been in situations on a number of occasions where opportunities have presented themselves which look risky, but if I'd said no to them on the basis of either too risky or um, that I felt I wasn't good enough, my career would not have progressed. And that's taken the form of leaving jobs when I felt that I had to go and just not wait to be bored in them and and to realise I wasn't terribly good at them. So taking the risk of moving away from things that, that weren't for me. And then when some opportunities have come along, including being invited to be a quota appointment in the AFL, um, on that AFL commission back in 2005, being prepared to take the risk of putting myself into that process um, and and getting the huge benefits of that moment of putting myself forward and not feeling that it was the wrong thing to do or somehow I wasn't worthy of the role because of the way the, the potential of the role was offered. Um, and I shared with the group the fact that what I didn't expect to be the risky part was um, after taking that role with the Football League, um, I expected to get some bad feedback from men who were nervous about 
this way of appointing a woman to a, a senior sports board. And I was prepared for that and prepared for my response. What I wasn't prepared for were the, the women who approached me after that and basically said that the risk I'd taken in doing that, they would never take, not because it was risky, but because it played to issues of lack of merit and being put in a position without being tested against men. And I found that really disturbing, that women I sort of assumed would be on my side and for whom I thought I was an advocate, actually revealing that taking a quota appointment was somehow um, anti-merit and wouldn't hold me in good stead in terms of my own personal brand and, and cap capability. And that's why I found myself in a very risky position of whether to to accept that that's just how some women felt or whether it was important to actually use that as a, as a means to have a conversation, a broader conversation about why we need targeted appointments, quota appointments, and that the women who take that whilst taking risks are actually putting themselves in the best position to grab the opportunity by being in those environments that haven't had diversity and women before. So that, that, that was sort of how I talked a bit about the, the personal risk taking and how I think for women we've got to get comfortable about that and, and understand that's sort of what men have been doing through their careers. And then we turn to this question of um, how does risk drive opportunity more generally in any organisation? And I tried to link the story of women taking risk with diversity and inclusion to point out that if organisations are going to be prepared to take risks um, and enter markets and territories and, and use ideas differently to grow opportunity, you really only get to do that if you've got a diverse and inclusive workforce that gives you the best sense of how to take that risk and what those opportunities might look like. And that a homogenous group of people, whether it's all male or all female or all private educated or all one culture, um, all from one particular kind of thinking, you're not, you just don't have the skills and insights to, to take those risks. So it was a way of underscoring that diversity and inclusion is actually a tool of much better risk taking and taking that risk in order to open up opportunities, which is, if I go back to the AFL to sort of round out these comments, what I discovered by being a woman in the senior ranks of football, I was able to give at that time a voice that hadn't been heard in that boardroom, which were the voices of women playing the game. It's not what I expected to be doing, but because I was there and because it was um, a voice of diversity, the women who played the game asked me to become an advocate along with the other women who then joined the commission and the good men around that table. And over the period of a decade, we were able to secure the launching of a women's senior league, which over time I think will prove itself to be the biggest opportunity the AFL has had to secure its entire base of fans and participants, more so than just um, the work they were doing on the men's competition. Um, so I think those, those things all add up to saying um, you need diversity and inclusion in organisations. We need to be able to take really good risks. We need to back women who take risks. And as I said at the very beginning, um, every time I've stepped up and taken another risk, I feel like my career's got a lot luckier and the opportunities have opened up. I love that. And uh, I think I've, I've said this uh, on uh, another of the podcasts, but the Chinese symbol for risk uh, is also opportunity. So. I think it's the perfect uh, perfect uh, analogy to talk about, you know, once sometimes you take a risk, it opens a, an opportunity for you and, and the opportunity to just think differently is, is huge. You've touched on so many things there that I do want to go into um, and you've had this incredible uh, career that, you know, spans sports, politics, corporates and, and not-for-profits. So I guess what are the you know what are the other highlights and what are the things that you've learnt along the way? Um, I'm constantly learning, Kimberly. I think as, as you are, and, and as we discovered when we were in Japan together, um, every time you open up the conversation about what still needs to be done or what what other people are doing, particularly what other women are doing, um, you keep learning. So I'm I'm constantly out there. Um, I think the thing I've learnt most across my career is to remain curious and open to, to where that curiosity takes me. So I've had highlights that have come to me by virtue of being open to them and I think you then, you earn a reputation as someone that people will bring interesting ideas or interesting challenges or um, uh, career opportunities to. Um, so I, I've been lucky enough to uh, work for 
a prime minister, um, as a policy advisor. I've been able to move around a number of sectors, and I've, I've really enjoyed um, being able to, to have a, a career that has, been, has had equal impact in the corporate world as it has in civil society or sport um, or government advisory. And I, I, what, what I've enjoyed most about my career and continue to really enjoy and value is that it's given me a set of um, experiences and I guess a set of eyes and ears to pay respect to the other. I think we, we, we operate in a world that's still quite siloed and I, over years and years I've heard people in the corporate sector describe people in the public sector in ways that have been fairly disparaging. I've heard the not-for-profit community talk about the evilness of the profit motive in the private sector. I've heard people talk about um, sport as um, as a joke and you know, not terribly meaningful if they come from the arts. And I've heard um, um, sports people talk about the arts as highbrow and irrelevant. And so, and all those statements are patently untrue. But if you've got a career that's, that's capable of moving across sectors and learning to respect um, how those sectors have operated and what's good about them, you suddenly realise that the connectivity and the, um, the opportunity for collaboration and thinking about how other people think is actually a great tool to have, um, a strategic tool, so that you can do more and more and not do everything in a silo, siloed manner. So I think the highlights for me have been entering to whole new fields and whole new um, sectors and just being amazed by the talent, the, um, the, the things going on in those sectors that I wouldn't have known about had I not um, taken those risks and, and put myself in those situations. And um, that's taken me into the arts, sport, um, into the aid and development sector, um, the disability sector. Um, and, but I'm still very, very comfortable and happy in the corporate world where I think because of what's going on at the moment with the, just the collapse in trust in institutions, particularly companies and governments and the media, more of us need to have that broader sense of how a community and a society works so that we can help restore some of that trust that I think is born of people operating in a way that a community doesn't understand anymore, thinks it's become too distant because they no longer understand how, how the world works. I think, I mean, it's sort of almost the real definition of, of inclusivity, isn't it, when you've got that connectivity and collaboration to bring everything together. Um, so incredibly powerful and and you have had some incredibly impressive bosses along the way through all of that uh, journey as well and you mentioned in one of your one of my favorite podcasts actually which is um, Holly Ransom's Coffee Pods um, she, you were talking about Justice Kirby and uh, that perhaps Justice Kirby saw something in you that was different to maybe the normal criteria that um, uh, that law students were judged on or just the top marks, etc., and, and potentially he took a bit of a risk on you. So <laughs> could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a great, it was a great moment for me because as a young woman, I'd finished my law degree, my arts law degree at the ANU, and um, at the end of every year, the article clerkships or the associateships with judges came up for um, application. And I applied for Justice Kirby, who was then the president of the Court of Appeal in New South Wales because he already had a reputation as someone who was um, uh, he thought differently as a judge who had a touch for what was going on in the community and, um, and of course that would have a great sense of human rights and dignity. And so I didn't apply for any other associateships and I really applied to his for the benefit of getting the interview. I, did, I had no expectation of becoming his associate because my my experience up until then had been that the judges really were looking for um, the the top law student in the top law faculties around the country. And so um, ANU was a very good law faculty, but it probably didn't have the prestige of Sydney University and Melbourne University. So and when I applied, it was really with the hope to just meet him. And what I discovered through that process was um, not only was I able to spend some time with him as part of an interview process, he explained as part of that that he intended to split the salary of the TIP staff and the associates um, every year so that he could be in a position to offer two associateships, one to a young man and one to a young woman, because he wanted to ensure that every year in his chambers he got the benefit of that diversity and didn't just have a, a, a seriously brilliant young man, which would have been the norm, or, or perhaps a seriously brilliant young woman at the time. And so he was doing two things. Um, I was not the brilliant law student. I was a good, so, strong, solid law student, but I did not have 
you know, the, the great grades. Um, and and he, so he, he found something in me in the conversation we had, which was all face-to-face, -face, uh, the interview, um, and then the, and Ian, who was um, the co-associate appointed at the same time as me, he put us together for reasons that were clear to him, having met us all, that we were the two he thought were going to be interesting and learn something during that year. Um, and, and I just took from that this extraordinary understanding that he was doing something very conscious. He wasn't leading it to the system to get diversity. He was making a conscious decision about this is how I'll use my salary entitlements for this job and I will use it to choose a woman and a man and um, and I'm going to choose women and men who I think are going to get the best, best of this, not simply the brightest. And I think I've carried that with me ever since because he was in a position just to choose the best and brightest. Um, he didn't have to do this and no other judge at the time was behaving like this. Um, but he, he was doing an active and deliberate act of inclusion standing by his words about equality um, and that was back in um, you know, in the late 80s. So um, I learned a lot very early on and I, I saw that repeated with other people I worked for who had that same sense of their own agency in making change and including women particularly um, but also people of different um, cultural backgrounds and, and experiences. And it has stuck with me ever since that you have to be quite deliberate about this, you can't just leave this to chance. Yeah, I think, I mean, amazing lessons in leadership, really, and um, ones that you just don't see, you know, still uh, repeated that often. And I think that's a very good message around the, you know, this has to be a deliberate, um, a deliberate thought process, deliberate actions. You know, fascinating. You, you then went on to work for um, Paul Keating, which uh, another incredible opportunity. Um, so tell us more about what you learned, I guess, around leadership and, and just uh, messages that you learned from, from Paul Keating must have been incredible. Yeah, it, it was. And he's up there for me as one of my, not just favourite, but best bosses for a whole lot of reasons, quite, quite apart from the fact that he was the Prime Minister of the country. Um, again, very, very fortunate for him to ask me to join his office as a policy advisor in the communications um, environment and sports area at the time and um, he had an office where he had almost gender equality across the senior policy people which I think was important at the time because um, it was easy for those roles to really be go going to men um, and so he had already had a view about where he was getting his policy um, advice from men and women. Um, what I learned from him though um, again were have affected me the entire um, the, the future of my career and, and, and a whole dear today. The first one was his definition of leadership and he always said and continues to say to this day that leadership is the combination of imagination and courage. I've tried to sort of unpack that many times to see if there were other words that would help but actually if you take those two words seriously about what, what is the act of imagination and, and using our imaginations which means intellectual curiosity, um, allowing ourselves to be drawn into things that we're not comfortable in, imagine a better world, um, really push into the future um, and remain curious. And then courage, and by courage you didn't just mean always stepping up, it was to have the courage of your conviction, to have the courage of your values um, and to take what your imagination um, and learnings really teaches you and then standing for something and doing things. Um, and and he, he thought of that at the time in the context of social progress and a better future for Australia at the time. And he applied that, I saw it very up close, he applied that to the three things he thought at the time, now into the um, late, well, mid to late 90s, that he believed Australia should be pushing towards. And the three that he pushed hard on were um, celebrating Australia's role in the Asia-Pacific region rather than our history as a colony of, um, of Great Britain. And he really felt very strongly that we needed much, much more respectful and meaningful engagement with the region, particularly Asia. He believed absolutely we needed to um, keep working and complete a lasting recon reconciliation with First Nations peoples in this country. And he believed that to his core. And he, thirdly, he believed we needed to stand up as a country and grow up and really um, become a republic and, and cut those um, monarchy ties that we've had historically. And I think he pushed really hard on those three things in addition to everything to do with building a strong economy, building a, an extraordinary superannuation base, which we hadn't had previously, um, fairness for workers, 
um, a whole lot of social justice and social nets under that would hold the community for those that didn't do so well. And that was his imagination and courage at work. Um, and even though ultimately, for, because those things were really pushing out against a community that probably was not as far advanced as him in that thinking, and that the political tide was changing, he went hard pushing those things, knowing that the potential to lose office um, was high. And he did lose office um, uh, against that backdrop. But I just observed a man who had that courage of his convictions for the country and believed that the, um, the prize for social engagement and believing deeply in social policy was social progress. And I've held that with me in terms of the jobs I've done, that where I can to think about what would make things better, um, how would we push through and, and start changing things for the better, and, um, and knowing that sometimes that means you need to put yourself in a sometimes a, a difficult or uncomfortable position as you bring people through a, a process of change. Um, but that it, it does matter to, as a leader to stand for something and to, to have that have that courage of your convictions. He, he also taught me, Kimberly, that it um, doesn't matter how important you are or how senior you are, that actually treating people with respect at all levels always matters. And he treated his office from the drivers and the um, personal assistants and the caterers through to the policy advisors, the political advisors, everyone in his office who had given up something to work for him, he treated with equal respect. And he was as concerned about us as people and our careers beyond working for him as he was for these big nation building matters. And it was a side of him that people didn't get to see unless you worked for him. Deeply caring, deeply loyal, but ultimately a, um, a, a deep respect for every one of us. Um, so we were all treated equally. Um, and he never played that card of being too busy or too important for anything. Um, along with Michael Kirby earlier, you know, this thing about never losing a sense of humanity and respect for, for everybody, no matter how senior or how important you are in the public's mind. So really incredibly fortunate to have witnessed that in my, as I was just coming up to my 30th birthday when I worked for, for, wow. for Paul, um, and I've, t I've taken that with me <laughs> wherever I've gone since. Yeah, incredible lessons in leadership. And I mean, it's really interesting because we talked before about, you know, you've moved through all of these different, from the public to the private, et cetera, um, and you've had a lot of twists and turns in terms of areas that you've got involved in. And I did read one article that, you know, tried to put a, uh, a less positive life light on that, saying that, you know, you hadn't stayed focused and, and I, I've, um, heard that criticism kind of levelled at other people who've, you know, had these kind of diverse careers or change functions, et cetera. And how do you, uh, how do you counter that? I mean, we talked a little bit about it in terms of how it brings people together and it allows you to collaborate. But I think it's an interesting one, the, 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 the dual uh, view on these things. Yeah, no, and it's a good pick-up, uh, Kimberly, because I do have people who, not only people who look at my CV, but people who look at me more generally who do have that that comment. Sometimes I find it comes from people who've had a very, very long-term stable career and haven't moved at all. And I've often wondered whether part of it is that yearning or that sort of sense that they wish they could have but felt the need for security. So I get that, that sometimes looking at it is about people who feel uncomfortable taking those other risks and moving on. So I uh, you know, accept that sometimes it's a criticism that, um, comes from people's own experience, and, and I respect that. Um, but, I, but when people make it to me in terms of a, um, really having a conversation with me about whether I'm reliable or do I hang around um, or if I move too quickly, um, I think I come back to that earlier discussion we had about how a society actually operates and that there are, I do think of myself as someone who maybe because I grew up in an army household and we were, we were on the move every two years, um, as young children and as young adults, and it, uh, we, we had to get to, to learn how to adjust and fit in and get to know new people and, um, and play our roles, you know, no matter where we turned up. And I suspect I got that restless spirit early on about being able to move across things and, and adapt quite quickly and, and make deep um, friendships fairly quickly. Um, but for me, it's been about um, making sure that I've got insights and understanding about different parts of how a society works and because of that curiosity and a bit of resilience 
it's meant I've been able to, as long as I've used those experiences as I've moved around and build on them so they become a substantive whole, for me, um, they've been the, the means by which I actually bring more to the next role and a deeper understanding about, about how the operations of where I am today um, are affecting others or, or could be impacted by others. And I think we do, I don't think everyone needs to be moving around it a lot. Although if we look at what's happening with a, a younger generation, and you mentioned Holly Ransom earlier, you know, Holly's millennial generation do have a capacity and a desire to move um, around and, and do that as, as, as a normal part of their career as they're gaining experiences and, um, and see the, the end of that role leading to something else. So we're dealing with a, um, a new generation that do this and I think that um, I counter the criticism by saying I think connectivity and respect for the other things around us um, is an important attribute for those of us that, that want to play that kind of role. You know, it's not for everybody, but I, I find it's, it's actually assisted me, particularly now that I'm sitting on non-executive boards in Australia. When you sit as a director and no longer in the doing role of an executive team, you've got to be able to bring that sense of challenge and um, worldly view in order to deploy your own responsibility as a director and know that you're providing some benefit to the company in that, in that sort of risk and, and uh, regulatory function. And I think that makes me a better director nowadays because I can draw on lots of things I've done in my career that help me be that better director and better challenger of, uh, respectful challenger of executives um, who are really very much in the moment in their organisations and in their industry set. Um, so, look, it's not for all. Um, I'm just not someone who settled into a career for life, and I think the future is full of um, challenges to the career for life model. Um, and I, I often encourage women, particularly on this risk-taking, that there's probably more opportunity by saying yes to a few of those riskier moves than, than otherwise, and you just never know where it will take you. I think it would be um, it's a good time to sort of get into your to your board roles and and sort of some of your view of of the role of boards now and and the difference that they can make and you said recently um, that it's a future that could see more responsibilities placed on board directors as companies help to solve problems that governments can't, including everything from health to housing, the design of cities, inequality, and climate change. So tell us more about the thinking behind that comment. Even over recent days, that's become much more apparent here in Australia with our Banking Royal Commission. Um, you know, we're now seeing um, the, the Banking Royal Commissioner and the gov federal government here talking about the specific role they expect directors and chairmen to have in the governance and the future of, of listed entities particularly, and that's been the financial services sector. Um, but we can see that happening in the technology sector, um, re really right across the, the business world. And I've got no doubt that by the end of that Royal Commission in Australia, as it did when we had a, an, an insurance Royal Commission back in the 90s or the early 2000s, it changes everything and it, it does, you, you see communities and then you see governments, regulators and the media turning their attention to those of us who are have sat in boardrooms and are sitting in governance roles and are the connection between shareholders and the analyst community and the operations of the business. And, and I think it's been coming for a, for a while, this idea that we've got to act more like stewards than simply directors or protectors of shareholder value. Um, I think um, it's, it's never been more important, uh, particularly because of the trust issue, um, the collapse of, um, of some of the standards that um, the, the community expects of companies and their directors, that um, if you, you, you don't choose to sit on boards just to draw a salary and have an easier life um, because it's not an easy life, it's a complex life full of risks, so back to this risk taking, you've got to feel comfortable that you're holding the risk at a very high level and that you're competent enough and I guess worldly enough to sit in those rooms and have those really tough conversations that almost can't happen anywhere else in the company about stepping back and saying are we doing the right thing by our communities, by our customers and by our own employees. And um, that, that has really been pushed up the tree to directors, much more so than where it used to sit really with chief executives and management teams. And I think rightly so. I mean, we live in a world now where so much of our future wealth is tied up in pension funds, superannuation funds, held by fund managers investing in companies. And 
um, and people have sat around those board table, tables um, as long as there's been that corporate structure and have been expected to play a proper governance role. And because we've seen so many collapses and poor performing matters, I think it's only right that people do look to, to those who are sitting in the boardroom and have an expectation that we we are performing as proper stewards. And, yeah. um, and it's not for the faint-hearted. You know, I think there was a time when it was seen as a kind of fairy, not easy, that, that, that would be dismissive of the, the good men that were in the room at the time, but it was a world in which there was absolutely no diversity. It was a sort of natural career path for retiring CFOs and CEOs. The kind of, the understanding of what those roles were was kind of fairly simplified. It was, and, and people were proud of those roles, but I'm not sure that, you know, 20 years ago, there was anything like both the external pressure and expectation or the complexity of what we're dealing with and the need for people to come back into the company to bring these other big issues. So you know, the companies dealing with climate change um, from their boards or social inclusion or um, inequality um, or the future of tech and privacy, whatever it is, that conversation now is generally happening because of a prompt in the board by people who come at it from a different direction and brought some diversity and different ways of thinking um, and also very concerned about how do we build trust and yeah. know that, that there's an expectation that uh, whether it's our customers or our employees, they're expecting these companies to step up into these areas that uh, whether it's about shared value or just behaving responsibly and being a good good company, um, that's where that conversation is really having a, a, a profound effect. Yeah, I mean that, that building trust obviously where, where we've seen a real trust deficit now um, and I think it's also referred to a lot more um, is the social license to operate. And so at the, at the board level and with this sort of focus on risk, you know, what are the, one of, what are the key discussions? What are the top um, agenda items at the moment, do you think? Well, it, so each, each of my boards is sort of in slightly different industry sets. So there's the, there's the industry focused risks that, of course, um, you, you spend a lot of time on and are very alive to. Um, but I think what I'll do is talk about the, the more macro risks that I think are pervasive, they're global, um, and they, they come at any organisation from any direction. Um, and it ranges from things as, um, as big as you know, the climate change discussion and what kind of a world will we deal with um, that, that has a, a different set of um, features when it comes to sudden and dramatic climate events. And climate change for me is a kind of proxy for the other things that are going on because um, it reminds me that we just live in a much more disrupted and big event-driven change world. Um, so those, the climate story is one of big disruptions in our food and energy system, our, um, our, our storm system. So for insurers, you know, the big issue of um, unexpected um, hurricane seasons or much more intensive cyclones causing damage. But it's more to do with this, this how these disruptions are coming at us than um, and so the social equivalents of that are things like inequality or the future of work in a, a world disrupted by artificial intelligence or the privacy issues we're currently seeing with Facebook and, and who do we trust with our, our electronic information. Um, then there are just the big issues of migration. We've never had, Second World War, we've not had as many people on the move who'd rather be in their own homes, in their own homelands, but are, are now on the move because of sudden and disruptive elements that may start in a climate event or in a, um, a political breakdown or the impacts of globalisation. These are big, big disruptions that, um, that, that we're having to manage and in addition to the specific things for our own industries. Um, and so at a board meeting we talk about um, often how do we remain resilient in the face of disruption, wherever it's coming from, what are the skills we need to have around the board table and the capacity to incorporate those things into our strategic thinking and our strategic planning with executives. It takes you straight to the question of the board when you have the opportunity to appoint a chief executive. What are the skills and characteristics of that chief executive in this environment versus what used to be a, you know, a more stable environment? So we're looking at different kind of candidates and then working with those chief executives around the kind of cultures and um, ways in which these organisations have to operate to be resilient and re responsive to disruption. And of course, I haven't even talked about, you know, the, the wave of um, circular economy and disruptive technologies and, and disruptive um, new players in, in all of our markets. That We're all dealing with that 
really in, in, in Transurban, for example, you know, a big road and transport provider through our toll roads, we spend a lot of time thinking about the future of connected and autonomous vehicles. But we've also got to you know, build trust in the fact that we are a, um, we're a large toll road company. And so how you balance the, the thinking about the future disruption and, and what your business is today and how you look after customers is a much more complex set of things we're dealing with. Um, and of course, we're dealing with an economy that really uh, everyone's sort of waiting to see um, what, what, whether we're heading towards another GFC, whether the incredible amount of capital flowing around the world at the moment actually is finding the right home. We've got massive investors like BlackRock saying from the very top that they have an expectation now that the companies that they will invest in will be dealing actively with all of these issues um, and become more diverse and inclusive organisations and, and earn community trust. So we've got messages coming at us from not just the community now but investors um, that I think is really changing the way in which boards have got to um, assimilate that information, manage it, and then run and, and help chief executives and management teams run really good companies that stand for something. Yeah, I thought the um, the investor angle driving for a lot of uh, a lot of those uh, big issues that you talk about, including the diversity one. So let's come back to to that as one of my uh, favourite areas, and I know yours. Um, you know how we continue to push for diversity, um, not just gender but culture and. There was, uh, I think it was the report came out on the on the day that we met in Sydney, saying that still, uh, it was from the Australian Human Rights Commission that 97% of chief executives are still Anglo Celtic, um, and I also, you know, change still seems to be quite slow um, and maybe not as deliberate as we spoke about. And even when you were appointed as an AFL commissioner in in 2005, it still took three and a half years. For the next woman to be appointed, and you were really pushing for it. So, what, what are your views on how we can accelerate? Yeah, and thank you for reminding me about that report because I, it was really interesting that, that on the day we all met, there was that report on the front page of the Australian Financial Review. Um, and I thought it was interesting that not only was it a report from the Human Rights Commission, but it was a joint report from them and Sydney Uni and the Asia Society and the Committee for Sydney. So, the, and the Committee for Sydney's view of looking at that was really about how this was going to impact. Um, Sydney as a city to compete globally. So there was this thing about where cultural diversity can really take us. And, and as you said, you know, 97% of our CEOs have Anglo-Celtic or European background, and we've not taken the advantage we have in this country of the extraordinary talent available to us, both gender and cultural and thinking styles. Then we are we're missing an opportunity. We're not we're not even talking about taking risks. We're just missing one of the most obvious opportunities. Um, and I think. Um, just before I go to how, what's going to change, um, McKinsey only recently, in its report into gender and ethnic diversity, um, found that among a thousand companies across 12 countries, the companies with the most diverse executive teams were 33% more likely to outperform peers on profitability. So these reports aren't just about the sort of the thematics; they are about the, um, the data that tells us that these drive incredible outperformance. So I think to come to your specific question about what's got to change, back to what we talked about with Michael Kirby, we need deliberative, purposeful action that brings that diversity to bear in the fastest and most effective way. Um, where I've seen that happen personally is that the chairman of Mervac, which is a property developer here in Australia whose board I sit on, the chairman, John Mulcahy, a few years ago um, with a woman chief executive, Susan Lloyd Hurwitz, He'd really invested in the idea that if we, if we could build a gender balanced board, we'd be a much more effective board um, because he would remove the element of there being a majority or potential for even, even any groupthink. And so he went out with his um, nominations committee of the board and, and actually sought to construct the rest of the board appointments to achieve that gender balance. So I was appointed alongside another colleague, Christine, um, in the last round of appointments. And the point was made we weren't compared to any men. He went to the market looking for two women non-executive directors to build that gender balance board. And he asked me six months after my appointment, did it feel any different? And it was just a delight to say to him that there's nothing quite like walking into a room where you don't have to actually carry or wear your form of difference into the conversation. 
as a burden, but where you can be your full and authentic self. And, and to watch the men similarly feeling that um, as equal participants in that board, and then to watch how much we are a better strategic thinking group, we're more supportive of the business, we have better intelligence and, and insight. It took John and the, that, um, that team a decision to say, we're going to deal with this right up front. We're not going to wait for this to happen incrementally or over time. We will deal with it purposely. Um, so I think uh, we've just got to get on with it. It's, it's, it's the shorthand. There are no, there's no shortage of interesting culturally and, gen and gender diverse candidates for roles in any company at, at any level. It just requires some purposeful action. The acknowledgement that conscious and unconscious bias plays out in the most insidious ways for all of us, and we're all guilty of it, and you have to get beyond that and find processes and systems to support that active act of inclusion, and it must extend to um, cultural diversity as much as it, as it has in the gender space. Yeah, and I'm, I'd like to, I want to get into sport because I know everyone will be interested, um, but I think it's an interesting tie in here. Obviously, we've had um, some recent challenges with uh, our cricket team, but also, as you said, the Banking Royal Commission is going on. And so, you know, there's real uh, questions being asked about the culture of different organisations as well as our sporting culture and the, and the win-at-all-cost type mandate. Um, you're on the board of the Sydney Swans and I know, you know, they have their, their no-dickhead policy, if, if you uh, like. <laughs> which I think is sort of setting that tone from the top, but I'd like to understand more about how you think the board, but also organisations as a whole, should think about and drive the right culture. It's a really important and fascinating question, Kimberly. Um, and yet that, that policy is the policy of the swans, and it plays out very, very actively every day from the, from the board through to the most junior person um, in the organisation. And what I love about that, creation of culture in that club, in a sporting environment, is it's, it has equal application to any organisation, whether it's a company or a, a civil society player, it just happens to be deployed in a sporting club. And um, whenever I meet the players or people involved in the football department or in management, um, they remind me of the fact that that's what's underpinning everything, which is this um, very strict adherence understanding of what drives that culture. And for me, it comes down to um, there is a deep sense of accountability and consequence in that organisation for breaching that, that, that culture, which as I think lots of places try to establish cultures and talk about it and um, champion the fact they stand for something. But unless you've got an accountability and consequential management involved in that, which means that anyone, no matter how senior they are, if they breach that culture, then they're not really welcome anymore. And if they breach it in a way that means they need to leave, then they need to leave. And um, I don't think we see enough of that active use of the culture to say that there are just some people who don't fit those cultures and who've behaved in a way based on being very high performers when it comes to financial return or in the sporting case, you know, they've kicked the most goals and they've been the most effective player. But in the Swans culture, if that player was transgressing the values about their behaviour and treatment of others and failure to be open and honest, then the club would sacrifice that incredible player to make sure that the culture was kept intact. Um, what we saw with Cricket Australia and that team in that moment, I think, was an instance of those players having no sense that there was a really big consequence to what they were dealing with because the, the culture had become so embedded in a win at all costs. You know, winning for Australia, you must do that, that all the other elements of real culture about standing for something and being rigorous and honest about that culture had somehow in that moment been lost, which says the culture wasn't strong enough and there hadn't been enough consequence in that culture previously. And I suspect Cricket Australia is now you know, dealing with that and having lost its very, very good senior players as a, as a consequence, but in the public glare because they were pushed to do that. Um, and I see it in corporations all the time, and we're seeing it now with the Me Too impact. Um, cultures work when everyone in the organisation can look at, knows that by being in that organisation there is a consequence for those people who don't live it. And, and then they have confidence and they feel, and then the, then, the, then the culture becomes this incredibly inspiring deliverer of opportunity because people know that they can trust it and they can trust the people in it. And that's why I see the swans. It's what I've seen in really good corporations where the, the heavy lifting's been done on beyond the words, beyond the statement of values, beyond the purpose. This is how we, we behave around here. And, 
and if you're not going to behave that way, we, we really don't want you here. Um, and it's become, I think, a really important part of just how our modern economy now works, um, particularly in corporate life, um, that we are all held to account um, around, a, around really good, strong cultures. And they do deliver better returns, whatever that return measure is for the organisation, um, and they're much better places to work, and they do attract better people, and the investors get that, so you've got this virtual loop. Um, but the cultures are, you know, they're a long, hard, consistent project um, and it takes incredible leadership um, and engagement across the whole enterprise to make sure they work. Yeah, uh, and so on to the kind of positive side of, of what you've been involved in with sport and one of the things that I think has been incredibly exciting, the AFL women's competition. So, you know, obviously it took some time for us to establish uh, a women's competition. We, how did you bring the board with you? How did that kind of come about? And, you know, tell us more about how we finally got there. It wasn't an easy journey, um, and it did take a lot of time. And as I said earlier, it was at the behest of a group of women who were playing the game, who had felt somewhat excluded as players who had a right to be pay, playing at the highest level. They were still playing around various leagues in the country, the state level and local level, but they felt incredibly strongly about the fact that their voices were not being heard around the top governance table. Um, so I was really pushed and supported by, by those women themselves who I, I've got a deep respect for. Um, and, and they knew that once there was actually a woman around the table that they could, they had a chance of having their story told. So it started with that act of them really putting their hand up and saying and inviting me into their world to come and see them play and understand what they'd been up against the entire time they'd been wanting to play. And then, as you said, you know, Linda Desso um, was appointed to the commission a few years after me. We collectively then had to work hard to, to bring um, our colleagues along, which they weren't anti it, but we needed to find ways to have that conversation around the board table. But then we, we started to take our male colleagues to, to games so they could see women playing. And by the time we got to some of the exhibition games that were put on at the MCG and Big Stadium in Melbourne, I made sure that I brought the chairman and the chief executives to those events with their families. And then at the end of the game, um, typically the women were asked to go down to the rooms to present the medals or to see the women after the game. And I just made um, the chief executive and the chairman come into the rooms, these are you know, the dressing rooms after the game, despite the fact they thought that wasn't a place that men should be, because in their minds they had a picture of women which was more about the, they were different and you know it's not right for men to see women in, in the change rooms. But in fact, what I needed them to see, what we needed them to see, was that all these women were, were just like them. They were um, elite athletes who loved this game and wanted to play it just like the boys and men, and that their conversations in the change rooms afterwards were exactly the same as the conversations that our chairman had had when he was the, um, the captain of a, of a premiership winning side as a young man. And once we got them into the rooms and, and they saw that, I think something shifted quite profoundly, and it was like, right, we're dealing with elite athletes, we're dealing with um, people who love the game like us, who play it like us, and we've got to, we've got to actually now do something about that. So, so there were important moments that sort of shifted and adjusted the men's response, and then we had to make sure that, um, that this was treated seriously as a competition and that women were respected for what they needed to get this competition up to the structure of the game, um, dealing with the difficult issues of salary equity, um, the involvement of women as coaches and as administrators, um, and to, to use the moment to launch the league um, as a deeply inclusive act for all the fans of the game. And, and what we've learned over that 10 or 12 year journey, now having done two seasons, is that it is a very fragile game, it, despite everyone loving it and really coming on board as, and, and seeing such great elite um, athletes playing their game, that it's, it's going to be a really hard, tough journey just to sustain it and make sure this works. And in the meantime, what's happened is out in the broader community, um, we've never seen a greater uh, lift in participation at the family and junior levels than what's happened after families have seen women play at the, at the, at the elite level. So families are, are wanting their, their girls and boys to play together now this game because they've got a sense of the possible. And I think it's become one of the biggest opportunities for the AFL. Um, but the AFL now, I'm no longer involved at the industry level, I'm involved at a club level, and I just know that what's going to happen now is a deep respect for those women and to manage this thing, just as you would in a company with a brand new product, you've got to give it special attention, you've got to make sure you don't, you see where the weaknesses are, 
um, and, and listen to the, the community that wants this and adjust accordingly and protect it um, to make sure that it can become a sustainable um, competition as part of the, the broader league. Um, but it was, it was hard, um, but I pay absolute respect to the men who, once they saw it for themselves and the penny dropped, they got it and they did move and they moved faster than any of us could have as the advocates because they held the controls to say, we're going to do this. And I, I pay respect to Gil McLaughlin, the CEO of the AFL, because originally he had said, look, I think we can do this and launch it by 2020. And the more we took him into those women's worlds of, of playing and, and the games we took him to, in at one stage in a, an event, he just in the moment said, I'm going to bring the, the start date forward to 2017. I'll take that risk. We're not ready, but I know it's going to get out there. We've got to honour these women. So it was a big risky decision, bring it forward three years, race to get it out. Um, but he knew that just making it perfect to start and spending another three years doing that, we'd lose the interest and we'd lose a number of the women who were getting to an age where they probably wouldn't see the, their own careers in that in that first um, that first season. So absolute credit to Gil and the team. Um, now that now the challenge is to manage it really well. I love that uh, that comment, the the sense of the possible. So I know one of the questions we got asked, which I thought was interesting, was when will the Sydney Swans have a women's team? And I thought your uh, answer to that was interesting. So if you could just share that with our radio, Risky Women radio listeners as well. Yeah, well, of course, I would love the Sydney Swans to have um, a team, as I would have loved um, St Kilda, who I was a barracker of as I grew up, to have a women's team, and neither of us do yet. And um, it goes back to my comment about how... Um, not fragile, I'm trying to think of a better word, but how you've got to nurture um, a new competition. So the first issue is you couldn't just have every club, they couldn't suddenly have 18 women's teams because there just isn't the depth of talent. Um, it would have put huge strain on the on the talent pathways and the product, the games themselves wouldn't have looked as good because you wouldn't have had just the elite women who could play at that level. So there was a smart reason to just have um, eight teams in the first the first iteration of the game, which meant that some teams couldn't apply. The Swans did think about applying for it to be one of those first eight, but in order to do it well and support elite women athletes, just like we have elite male athletes, you've got to have facilities and the capacity to treat those women with respect and just as you have the men. And in the Sydney market, the Giants, who were a brand new team who had this, have got these remarkable facilities, they could easily tick that box of having everything they needed to support a women's team just like they would a men's. Whereas the Swans have got one of the oldest and probably compromised facilities in the league, and because it's, we're not a footy state in the same way that, um, say, Melbourne or, or Perth or Adelaide is, um, if we'd had a women's team, we would have had to have them training um, so far away from the club infrastructure that it would have been seen to be dismissive of them and make their life pretty ordinary. And there's currently no women's changing facilities or women's change rooms at the Sydney Cricket Ground where we play and where the men play so we start, we'd start on the back foot asking those women to become our elite talent and represent our club without the support that we give the men. And I think it was a conscious decision by everyone in the club at the time to say when we enter this market, when we enter with great women, we'll do it when we give them absolute respect and support and services they will need to be their very best so they're not compromised. And there's a Sydney club that can do that at the moment. So let's let that happen. In the meantime, We've put all our effort into building a talent pathway program for young women and girls through our academy that's always only ever been for boys. And just last Wednesday night, um, we had our first ever induction of our first young women and girls players into the Youth Girls Academy as part of the Sydney Swans Academy. And there were 130 girls and young women who were there with their Guernseys on for the first time being formally inducted into a talent pathway program um, that will see them become those AFLW players for the Sydney Swans. Um, but by the, well, when they are ready to play, we will have the infrastructure and the, the support ready for them so that we do it with the same degree of, um, of support we have for the men, which goes back to our, our culture as a club. It, it, it would be very easy to get in there and say we were one of the first, first in the game and to wear that for a while, but we could not get ourselves comfortable that it would be the right thing to do for the women athletes themselves. So... We've got a lot of explaining to do with our fans who would like nothing more than for us to have a team out there in the red and white, but it would be the wrong thing to do. And it would be doing it for presentation and, 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 and other purposes, not for the deep sound, you know, the deep support we have and want to give women athletes in our club. So um, I'd say 2020, 2021, 
um, we would be we'd be bidding for a licence um, if we're happy that our facilities can can really support those young women. So quickly, a tip for uh, next year's winner in the women's competition. Oh, in the women's competition, it's hard because it's, it's, <laughs> it changes every season because of the way the draft works and all of the people who thought they knew who was going to win this season um, probably hadn't really pegged the, the Bulldogs to win. Um, so I, look, I think we might see one of the clubs that hasn't been in a final in the first two seasons come through. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not prepared to back one in particular because I think there are two, there's two new clubs joining in season 2019. Um, they may come in with a, a rage and a, a different set of um, players. I'm not sure. But it will, it will be thrilling and we'll see another significant lift in skills and quality of the game um, next year. And we've got to keep remembering that these women only get to play seven games in a season and then they have to go back to their regular jobs during the rest of the year. So um, they, they, they have to turn up every season and turn this on and be really fit and ready. Um, and so in those circumstances, really, um, it's an, any, any team on any given day can possibly win. Connecting, celebrating and championing women in risk regulation and compliance, Rescue Women Radio takes an intimate look at the rants and revelations of the top women shaping the debate and the industry. So if you were thinking about what's one thing that you wish you could change now and why, what would that be? Um, I'll try to keep this short, even though it's a very big rant, and I'd love to just rant for an hour. <laughs> um, I just think our collective failure to deal with the big issues of our time, and they're collectively called the sustainability issues, um, is one of the greatest neglectful, risky things we're doing at the moment. And it's not risk with opportunity, this is risk with downside. Um, we, are, we know the pathway to deal with issues like climate change, um, the protection of our oceans, um, the protection of, of, of indigenous cultures, um, the passage of what we're handing off to a future generation. We, we're involved, I think, at the moment in the biggest act of intergenerational theft from, for our, from our children that we've seen. And um, I think we're so stuck in ideology and the, 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 the political environment that we're not allowing what is a deeply felt sense in us all as humans that we need to be doing better on the things that we know will make um, the world a better place for our kids. And I don't mean that in some kind of hopeful, dreamy, you know, peace for all uh, way. I mean there are substantive things we can be doing that we're not doing either as a country, uh, as a region and then as a world um, that the Sustainable Development Goals are showing us can be done to create whole new opportunities for our environment, for, our, um, for, um, for people, for growing generations, um, for women, um, and we're not doing it fast enough. And I, I feel so angry that we are stuck yeah, and that, that I will not be giving, I will not be handing off to my 18-year-old daughter the kind of exceptional opportunities and world that I was born into in the 60s um, and that that has profound implications. So I'm really angry at that. And I, whether it's a failure of politics or a failure of us, I just know we can do better. And, um, and I wish we get more of us to sort of, um, articulate that and start showing why that would make our own worlds better, let alone the, the generation we should be thinking about. Yes, absolutely. And then, so on the positive side, then what sort of advice would you give to your younger self or that kind of concept of what you know now that you wish you knew then? There's so many things I would want to say to my younger self, but the thing I think I would say to her is that um, she should... Always take the opportunity to sit and listen carefully to the things happening around her. I, when I was younger, um, I was so enthusiastic and so determined to make change and to get on that I think I spent a lot of time in sitting around with other people waiting to talk rather than actively deeply listening. And I think that act of being able to listen and regroup and take on the learnings from others before throwing your own ideas in um, makes the idea you have even better. And um, and I do sit around tables now where I look at my colleagues and, and people I work with and I, I watch people waiting to talk, um, which is that you, you know it yourself in a room where you're already processing what you want to say and you're not, in, in that moment, you cannot be listening to what's being said around you and taking in that other bit of information. And so I try to ground myself nowadays in that active, thoughtful, engaged listening and not thinking I've got to always have a response to, to something, but to listen and rest in the moment. And the more time I've spent with Australian Indigenous communities um, and been offered information in a way that is respectful and where you, you reflect before 
talking, um, I know that's a much better way to have an influence on change and not simply always be there with the idea you first had. So amongst many, many things I would say, I'd probably tell my younger self um, that it would be nice to have more children. Um, I have one daughter, one child, and she's now gone off to university, and um, that's, that was sort of sudden and shocking. So I kind of would say maybe think about having some more children if, you, if you're up for it. Um, but that would be very specific to me at the moment because of my sense of um, loss that my daughter's now grown up. But, um, but I think just, just the act of listening and reflecting and showing respect to others, even when you're very young, um, pays enormous dividends and helps your own thinking and capacity for change. Well, Sam Moston, it has been fantastic having you uh, twice with uh, Risky Women, uh, Risky Women Live and Risky Women Radio. I think we've got some incredible messages there on uh, leadership, on things that we should be thinking about and certainly uh, working through that, what it means around taking a few risks. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure and I hope that uh, Risky Women Radio takes off and um, I'll certainly be listening to all of your episodes, Kimberly. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Risky Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter, or even reaching out to me directly by email.